Alright, if you have your Bibles, if you take them out, please open them to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews and the sixth chapter. As we resume our examination of this passage, if you would join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word, please. Hebrews chapter 6, starting again at verse 9. Beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give to us grace in this day. We pray that you would teach us to walk in truth, teach us to obey what you give to us, and help us, God, to understand the dynamic reality of just going along with you, regardless of what we see or what we think or what it feels like, but just to give us a patient faith, an ability, Father, to continue and to endure until the end of all things. God, give us grace in this day. Make us faithful. Make us faithful. Make us faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. The dictate of Scripture that we are given here is simple. Find those who lead well and follow their example. They have broken trail for us. We must enlarge and maintain it. There will be those who follow behind who have need of our faithfulness. It's simple enough for us to understand, but it is so profoundly challenging to us on nearly every every level that we seldom find people even willing to admit that this is the command of God, let alone willing to set out for obedience. Here's the crux of the matter, the horns of the dilemma, if you will. We're promised in John 6, 37, that every single one who God has chosen for himself will be saved. We're further instructed in 1 John 2, verses 18 and 19, that those who fall away and do not return are giving evidence to the fact that they were never saved in the first place. And we're told in Philippians 1, 6, that God will certainly complete the work that he's begun in us. This means that we absolutely must set ourselves with all we have in us to follow after the command of God to patiently pursue him and his righteousness. And we must have faith that no matter what today looks like right now, God is at work and will surely complete his own glory. We must not lose heart, and we must leave a good trail for those who are following after us. So I want to think with you this morning about how to put this into practice. And we're going to think about it in the context of those who have led before us and those who are coming after us. And I, I want to just kind of unpack it in this manner because that really is the pressure. The pressure is, is that God doesn't call you to necessarily break trail into new depths of the Christian faith. The trail's been laid pretty well. He does, however, call you to obey what's been said and what's been given. He calls you and commands you to follow obediently those who have gone before, to follow their example, to do what they've shown us how to do. And he calls us to remember that there are those who are coming after us who are one day going to be looking at us and saying, those who've gone before broke trail for us, and we need to follow in their footsteps. And so we must make sure that the steps that we're leaving are worth being followed. Amen? Amen. We've got to make sure that what we're doing is going to be helpful to those who come after. So we can look at some Old Testament saints and think through how this is put into effect. Um, We can think about Abraham, for instance, who believed God, took God at his word, and according to Scripture, it was counted to him as righteousness. Look at Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 And in Romans chapter 4, starting at verse 1, we find this. 
What shall we say then that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. You understand that statement? If Abraham had anything good to contribute, then he does indeed have something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So, the specifics of what Paul is alluding to is the fact that God approached Abram and made a promise. He said, Abram, I'm going to give you children. I'm going to give you a seed. I'm going to give you progeny. I'm going to grant that you will be the father of many nations. Now, this is a a pretty cool promise, but when you realize that Abraham was 90 years old when that promise was made, and his wife Sarah was 80, well, that makes it a bit more of a promise. That makes it a bit more spectacular. Because even in that day, their bodies were both such that having children naturally probably wasn't going to happen. Sarah clearly had had passed through the time of life and was no longer fertile. Abram was an old man with all of the accompanying issues that come along with that. And Abram had the option to say, yeah, God, I'm sorry, but that's not really going to work. Or he had the option to believe. And what he did was to take God at his word. God had called Abram unto himself. God had dealt with Abram and given him faith to believe. And Abram believed according to the faith that was given to him. He took God at his word. Now this is important for us to understand because this is how anybody does anything pleasing in the sight of God. We take God at his word. Now, God makes promises to people all the time. And people either believe him or don't. What's, what's going to be the distinction in what allows us to believe and what doesn't allow us to believe? It's the gift of God giving us faith to accompany the promise. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that faith is not of you. It's a gift of God. It's his work to give you faith to believe, to allow you to take him at his word. And so we have this dynamic in which God gives us what he requires of us. And we're going to see this throughout the whole of everything that we're looking at. It's still God doing the work. But as God does the work, he draws us into this relationship. And what he requires us to do is to take him at his word, to use what he's given us. He gives us faith. He calls us to believe. He gives us faith. He calls us to exercise it. This is his working in us. And across the board, what this means is that as we begin to obey God and as we begin to follow after Him and as we begin to do what He tells us to do and and walk in grace and walk in faith and walk in faithfulness, that we learn who He is through the process. We learn more about Him. We learn more about His nature. We learn more about His character. We learn more about who our God actually is. And to a living heart, God becomes more beautiful. God becomes more desirable. He becomes somebody that not only do we want to believe, but we can believe because he has shown us his faithfulness. He's shown us that he is not to be disregarded and that everything that he says and everything that he does is true all the time. He demonstrates to us his nature, which then reinforces the faith that he gives us and allows us to believe him. This is all the working of God. And David shows us that when we think about how David himself was called. 1 Samuel 13, Samuel says to Saul, you've done foolishly. Now Saul was the king prior to David, 
And Saul had disobeyed God and, and done a lot of things wrong, and it had just reached a point where God has decided that he is going to take him off of the throne. Samuel said to Saul, You've done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment that the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now this tells us something really intriguing about David. It tells us something really important about David that we we need to recognize. And this is that David was a man whose desire was for God. This, this idea, this expression, a man after God's own heart. What does that mean? Well, it could mean that David's heart was like unto God's. And I suppose at one level we could say that. Although, if David had a heart like God's, David wouldn't have done some of the foolish things that he did. And God pronounced David a man after his own heart, not only here, but also in the New Testament, affirming what Samuel says. So what does it mean that David had a heart after God? It means that David had a heart that pursued God even from his brokenness. He had a heart that pursued God even when he got it wrong. He had a heart that was always searching to be restored unto God. If you want to have something that defines the character of David and gives it to you with some clarity, I would put it in this term. David was an excellent repenter. David failed and repented, and failed and repented, and failed and repented. And David's strength was his ability to repent. Now, let me ask this question, because it's important that we understand it. What is it that provokes a man to repent? I'm sorry? His brokenness in the sight of God. His belief that God will receive him the faith that God gives him that allows him to believe that. And ultimately, it's this dynamic reality wherein we know that when we cry out to God and say, God, please, God always says yes. That heart comes from God. That heart to believe, that heart to pursue, that heart to trust him, that heart to ask for mercy. That's the gift of God. And the distinction is that those who have a heart that comes from God will find that that heart is always answered when, when we cry out. God is always drawing us closer and closer to Him. He is always nourishing our souls. He is always giving Himself to those who seek Him. Now, remember that only those who He calls can seek Him. Only those that He draws can seek Him. Only those that He has made alive can seek Him. It's His work from start to finish. So, He's rewarding what He's given which is a really funny thing to consider. It's the idea that that God gives us something and then rewards us and praises us for possessing the thing that he put into our hands not two seconds before he gave it to us. It's a remarkable exchange. And it gives glory to him and reserves none for us. But what it shows us in our pursuit of God is this heart that David demonstrates says, you're never going to get this right. You're not ever going to have this 100% so that you never mess up. Instead, when you do mess up, run to your Father, who will always forgive and always restore and always be gracious. A heart that's after God believes Him, even when it makes no sense. It believes Him even when we're broken. It believes Him even when we hurt. It believes Him even when nothing that we can put our head to or our hands around follows that that we should believe Him. A a heart that is after God just believes God. This is not a normal human heart. This is a heart that God Himself has planted in us. And it's a heart that says that God will reward everything that He has given and everything that He has promised. Moses is another one who can give us an example and a piece of what it looks like to pursue and to understand what God requires of us. Um, This patient continuance that we see in Abram and that David exemplifies with his heart of repentance. Moses shows us another aspect. So look with me at Hebrews chapter 11.
Hebrews 11, we'll start reading at verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents, because they saw that he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed down through the Red Sea by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. So Moses gives us this understanding that part of this patient continuance, this belief in God, trusting him, taking him at his word, and this belief that translates into a heart of repentance also means that God becomes so precious to us, precious in our esteem, precious in our desire, that we want him more than we want anything here. Amen. We want him more than we want the pleasures of this world. We want him more than we want the satisfaction of all the things that the world can give us. We want him more than we want our stuff, our shiny objects, our, our praise of man, our anything. Moses had everything as, as a, an adopted child of Pharaoh. He was literally a king of the world. And he chose to abandon all of that for the sake of God's people so that he could pursue God with his people. And and the writer of Hebrews gives us this really interesting phrase, viewing the esteem of Christ to be more precious than than the praise of man and than the things of the world, than, than all the riches of Egypt. That would imply that what God was drawing the Old Testament saints to is the same thing that he draws us to. He wasn't drawing them to an obedience to the law. He was drawing them to a relationship with himself. And the person of Christ is ultimately the the vessel of that relationship. We come into the presence of God through the person of Christ. And and it's, it's this mystery that was partially revealed in the Old Testament. But even then, knowing as little as they knew, they still went forward trusting God. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and starting at verse 10, we find this. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who is in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. Now we look at this verse once in a while and we talk about the reality that there's not an angel in heaven that would not trade places with the least of the saints. But sometimes I think we overlook the reality of what this passage is really pointing at, the, the heart of this passage, is the fact that those who came before had glimpses of the mystery. They had just a little piece of the puzzle. They had their own little part that God gave them to give. And with that came an understanding that what they were doing was entrusting something to those who come after. That's us. They were entrusting these things to us. And and, beloved, hear me. You have so much more light than they did. Okay? But you still don't possess it all. And sometimes I hear Christians testify that since they don't have it all, they're not going to tell any of it. And that's wrong. If the prophets of old had acted that way, would we have anything? No. You see, we have received from those who faithfully walked even though they walked in the dark. It's been said that a novelist can only see 
the headlights. It's like he's driving in night. He can only see what's directly in front of him, but he can make his entire journey that way. It's kind of the same for us. God doesn't give us more light than we need for the next few steps. Often, no more than we need for the next step right now. But as you move forward, the light moves with you, and he shows you the next step. What he calls us to do is to take him at his word and to believe that he is going to be faithful to fulfill everything that he said he was going to do. Amen. The prophets who came before took him at his word. They knew that they didn't have the whole picture. They knew they were giving pits and pieces and parts. And they knew that they were giving it to us. And God, because he wanted us all to have it at the same time, withheld from them the secrets until it could be given to us all at the same time. And that's pretty amazing. It's pretty remarkable. The idea that we don't have to know everything there is to know for us to be found faithful. The apostles lived this out as well. They understood more. They had been given light. They had been given understanding. They had been given clarity. They still didn't have all the answers. But they had more than the prophets before. And the heart of what they knew came from one thing and one thing only. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it says, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, and they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. See, this is a heart after God that is clearly defined and made manifest to the world around us. And I want you to understand that you're not required to have all the answers. What you're required to do is carry with you the flavor of Christ. You should be a person who, in everything that you do and everything that you are, shows the world that you have spent time with Christ, that you have been with Jesus and that you have known his character, that you have tasted of his goodness, that you have delighted in the fullness of who he is, that this reality of walking with Christ has transformed your life. That means that there's going to be places in your life where people knew you before in all of your sin and all of your ruin. And you're going to come to them and they're going to go, why should I listen to you? And the answer should be, do you not see the difference? Do you not see who I am instead of focusing on who I was? Do you not understand how drastically God has changed and transformed my life? Now that change and that transformation is both something you work at and something you can't attain. It's something that God himself gives, but he calls us to cooperate with him. So when you fail, what do we do? We do like David. We repent. We turn back to him. We take him at his word that there's nothing you can do which is bad enough or strong enough or wicked enough that God will abandon you. Because there was nothing good enough that would call him to draw you. It's all him his joy, his pleasure, his design, his delight. You had nothing to do with it in the beginning. You have nothing to do with it in maintaining it. And you have nothing to do with you not being able to lose it. It's all God. It's his work from start to finish. The totality of it is his. But you're called, you're commanded to show the world what it looks like to have been with Jesus. And you can expect that when you show the world what it looks like to have been with Jesus, that they're going to throw a big party and celebrate you. No. That's not true. Jesus said the world's going to hate you. The world's going to come against you because it hated me first. But there are those in the world who God is going to use your testimony and your life to draw to himself. He's going to permit you to have some part in the salvation of some that he is calling. But when the world comes against you and says, no, 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 you may not speak the name of Jesus. You may not say these things because they're politically incorrect, because they're transphobic or they're, they're, they're racial or they're whatever other tag they're going to put on us for speaking the truth of Christ. The scripture also gives us an answer for that. Look at John, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 4, just a little bit later, verse 19 and 20. What happened in the middle, and I'll just give you the story in a nutshell, the Pharisees and the scribes, having realizing that Jesus 
had been around these people and that he'd impacted them said, you know, we can't stop that, but we can stop you. So don't ever speak in the name of Jesus again and don't ever tell anybody anything about him. Verse 19. Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. So the command that's given to us to be faithful in the sight of God says that we are called to obey the authority that stands over all things. And that is the authority of God. And God tells us to speak what we see and speak what we hear, to be faithful witnesses of his glory and of his power. He calls us to do that, and he is absolutely unapologetic about telling us to do that in spite of any governmental mandates to the contrary. Beloved, hear me. When the government finally gets around to outlawing what we're doing here, I will still be here doing what we're doing. Well, we'll do it in jail too. John MacArthur put it really well. I've always wanted a jail ministry. There you go. Understand that whatever the world does or doesn't do, whatever the world likes or doesn't like, doesn't matter to us. What matters is that we are faithful to obey our God. Because this is how we follow those who've gone on before. We're not going to read all of Hebrews 11, but I would commend it to your study, commend it to your approval and to your um, understanding. Because he goes on to talk about all of those who've given their lives for the sake of the name of Christ, even before they knew who Christ was. And he talks about how the world slaughtered them and how the world abandoned them and how the world abused them and how the world did every vile thing under the sun to them. But still they believed. And they believed because they knew their God. So if you're not walking in faithfulness so that you know your God, you're going to find yourself just a little bit ill-equipped in the day of trouble. Because at that point, it's kind of late to try and play catch-up. Now, God's God, and he can do what he wants, and he can grant extraordinary faith to a person who's been faithless. But by and large, the pattern of God's work is to give you time to prepare now, which is why we learn to walk with him, which is why we learn to listen to him, which is why we learn to study, which is why we learn to take him at his word and to trust him and to believe him and to let the stamp of his character begin to be seen by all who know us. This has been what generations of the church before have done. This has been how this has worked. You can can go to nearly any era of history and you will find the testimony of God's people faithfully expounding what God has said. Beloved, I don't know whether you put this together in your mind or not, but this is our era of history. And if God tarries, there will be those who come after who look to see the faithfulness that has gone before us. Because every time time passes, as as history progresses, the trail gets worn, and it sometimes becomes a little hard to follow. That's why every generation has to mark it out. That's why every generation has to go and maintain the trail and blaze trail and and do all the things that allow us to see clearly what God is saying. This moment matters. It matters for now, but it also matters for those who come after. God calls us to be faithful in that account. He calls us to faithfully walk in the footsteps of those who have gone before. And he also calls us to faithfully walk in the footsteps of those who are with us now and out in front. Beloved, there are people who are walking and and saying things and doing things that are honoring to God on a much larger stage than anything we're likely to ever find. There are those who are walking among us who have been faithful for decades and who are seeking to finish well. And the scripture tells us that we are to honor them, that we are to listen to them, that we are to revere them. Um, In Leviticus chapter 19, I believe it is, verse 32, it says, You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man. Fear your God. 
I am the Lord. God calls us to be faithful in that understanding that those who have gone before, those who have led the way, they deserve to be honored for their faithfulness. Have they done it perfectly? Nope. Are you doing it perfectly? Nope. It's not the standard. The standard is, are you doing what God calls you to do? And if you're doing that at all, you deserve to be honored for your faithfulness. You deserve to be honored for doing what God has told you to do. You see, there are so many different tendrils that the world is, is casting at the church to undo the structures that God has put in place. There's a reason why in, in the list of big sins that God is really unhappy with, being disobedient to parents comes up a lot. Being disrespectful to your elders comes up a lot. Because this idea of respecting those who have gone on before and listening to them, instead of just assuming, oh, they're old, they don't know anything. Listen. They're, they're, they're old. They've, they've gone the way. They understand some things just by a hard life. Give reverence and give, give attention and, and heed them. It doesn't mean that they're right in everything that they do. But because they've gone before, they are worthy of being honored. And this matters in the dynamic of how we put it to work. Even where, even where people are wrong in their understanding, a, a reverent, obedient, faithful manner of approaching the conversation and approaching the differences will go a whole lot further than just disregarding them as a person. Beloved, understand that, that this war is being fought around us in, in such dramatic ways. In Canada right now, they are killing people just because they're old, just because they are mentally depressed, just because their lives aren't what they wanted them to be. It's appalling the things that are going on in the world around us right now. And the church is the one who is called to be the bastion of truth and demonstrate what this is supposed to look like. God calls us to be faithful in this action. And he reminds us that the whole body of Christ is necessary for the fulfillment of our task. Look at 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to start reading at verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. What is, the, what is the distinction in, in the reason why he commends the aged? I've written to you fathers. Why? Because you have known him. You've known him who is from the beginning. You have known God. And sometimes the young, brash, arrogant people among us need a little tempered reason. Need somebody who has walked with God, who has known God. In the Old West, they used to take a, a very old steer and chain it to a, to a very young, headstrong cow or, or bull to calm them down. The idea is that you, you, can, you can learn a lot from somebody who's walked before. But there's also a need for the dynamic vitality of youth. Those who are agile and strong, leading the charge against the gates of hell. There are people right now who are young in age, but taking a lead in the positions of the church and doing things that they're called to do and being obedient to, to advance the charge. So this is not just about older than me, I'm going to listen, younger than me, I'm going to disregard. This is about the fact that God has placed us all in different capacities and given us different callings. And we all need each other or we're going to fail. 
And those who come after us need us all to be faithful in the portions that have been given to us. There are those who are teaching and encouraging in the fight. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. There are those whose only calling is to teach and proclaim the truth of God. And they themselves are seeking to obey Him in their lives, obey Him in the way that they walk. And Paul speaks for them all and says, Follow me as you see me follow after Christ. Beloved, here's the truth. I don't have the same opportunities to interact with the lost in the world that you do. The calling on my life is different. I I, I do as I have time and opportunity. I speak to people every chance I can. But if you're out there living in the world and working in a regular job, interacting with, with hundreds of more people in a week than I do, you are leading the charge in that capacity. You're out there doing the things that you're supposed to be doing. And my job, my calling, according to Scripture, is to prepare you for the work of ministry. Not to do the ministry, but to prepare you for the work of ministry. So that you, the church, might go out and do the things that you're called to do. See, we're all needed in the capacities that God has given to us. There are those who are out in front in the fight and those who are teaching. There are those who are even now walking in the shadow of death. Hebrews 13.3 says, Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Does it make you less of a Christian because God has planted you in a country where you're not going to die for the faith today? Does it make you less of a Christian because you were able to drive here and park your cars openly in front of the church instead of having to sneak for three hours through darkened fields to hide in a cave under the ground and have church by candlelight so nobody knows you're there? Does it make you less? No. But are you permitted, according to God, to forget those who are struggling that hard just to hear the truth? No. Remember them. Understand that they're also setting an example for us. Because unless God changes things in the course that we're on, that will be us soon. That will be this nation. If God doesn't change it, freedom's a dying thing. Everybody wants safety instead of freedom. It's an illusion. There is no safety. No safety at all. And we need to remember that. So fighting for safety is foolish. For us as Christians, we need to recognize the truth that those who are suffering and dying for the sake of the name, they're a part of the body even though they are removed from us. Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 10 John writes, Do not fear any of these things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. All of this comes down to us being faithful to follow after our great example. Jesus Christ. You see, the apostles followed the one that they knew. They followed Christ. Those who followed the teaching of the apostles followed the one who the apostles knew through their teaching. And it trails all the way down to us. But if we lose sight of the fact that the fountainhead of the one that we're following is Christ himself, we run amiss. Because people will often misstep. And if you become religiously convinced that the people that you're following after are right regardless of Scripture, you're going to be wrong. If you decide that the traditions of the church and the traditions of men and the words of men in power mean more than the Bible, you're going to get it wrong. What we're called to do is anchor everything back to the person of Christ. Anchor everything back to the scripture. Anchor everything back to what God has told us about Jesus himself. He is the great example. And the writer of Hebrews puts it into this perspective in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. 
Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Where do we ultimately look? We look to Christ. And we look to Christ because Christ gave us everything that is needful. He came and He led us into His own heart. It's it's mind-boggling when you pause to consider that the God of the universe, the very Word of God, who is the power that created all things, put on flesh and came here and dwelt among men, normal, everyday, working-class men, fishermen and and, and, and tax collectors and, and every other thing, political zealots and, and rebel rousers and, and bad people all over. And he brought them into the depths of his heart and he loved them. He wasn't picky about who he loved necessarily. He didn't, he didn't exclude people by class and category. He was picky, but because he picked them. <laughs> He chose the ones that he was going to give his love to because they were the ones God had given. But they come from all over. John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them. And he didn't stop loving them. Look at John chapter 15. Jesus speaking to his disciples about the things that were coming, not only in the next few days, but in the things that would come after, after he had been raised and gone back into heaven. Starting at verse 9, he says this. It'll make more sense if I'm reading in John 9 and not Acts. I mean, John 15 and not Acts 15. John 15, starting at verse 9, Jesus says this. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Now, there's, there's weeks upon weeks upon weeks of teaching right there in that truth. As the Father has loved me, so I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that your joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. So he brought us into his own heart, and at the bottom of his own heart was this limitless well of love for his people. And he chose to tell us that he loved us. He chose to allow us to enter into a relationship with him that resonates with that love, that is filled with the love of the Father, that is filled with the love of Christ for us, and that is filled with the love that exists between Jesus and God. That's what he's calling us into, and that's what we're supposed to know and experience by spending time with him so that we might be where he is. Now, the elephant in the room is that we cannot be where he is according to our own nature, for we are fallen and rebellious and filled with sin and broken in every way, and God will not abide sin in his presence. So Christ, because he loved us, died to pay the price for our sin. He suffered our punishment so that we might have acceptance and an inheritance in our Father's house. 
Turn back to John chapter 14 and start at verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and you have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said unto him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father also. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. In the end, we know that Jesus promised that wherever he is, he will come back and take us to be with him, so that where he is, there we may also be. But what we often lose is the reality that where he's going to be is in the presence of God. He's going to be where God is, and we, in our own nature, are not welcome there. So Christ came and died for us so that we might be accepted into the presence of God, so that we might be accepted into his own presence. I I can't stress enough how wondrous this is. We are not going to be taken to a heaven where God is far off. We're not going to be taken to a heaven where God is, is, is distant and we just go about our business and we think, oh, this is nice. There's no more sin and I can do anything I want to do. We're going to be taken to a heaven where we are in the presence of God for all of eternity, delighting in Him, basking in His glory, worshiping Him in truth and in spirit and in the fullness of everything that He is. Everything about heaven revolves around the person of God. And if we lose sight of that, then then what we're doing in our teaching and in our leading is leading people astray. The the people who preach and teach that all God is concerned about is you having a good life now and enjoying all the things that the world has to offer, all they're doing is leading people to hell because they are not leading people to the presence of the Father. And we need to be clear about that. We need to understand that what God tells us in His Word is that He is the reason for everything that's going on. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and following says this, As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we might be glorified together. He died so that we might know Him. He died so that we could be where He is. Amen. John 17.3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I'll say that again. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus defines eternal life not as living forever, although you will. He defines eternal life as living forever in a relationship with God that is intimate and personal. That's what defines eternal life. It's God. It's His glory. It's His fullness. It's His beauty. That's what defines everything that is. And He died so that our redemption would become a love gift unto the Father. So that our redemption would not only be for us, but more importantly, that it would be the vindication of the righteousness of God. When God redeemed you, if he just foo-fooed your sin away, he would be unrighteous. When God redeemed you, if he said your sin doesn't really matter, he would have been evil. 
But God redeemed you by paying the debt for your sin. And in doing that, he vindicated and justified his own holiness and righteousness. Look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 23, Paul writes this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, what does this mean for us? We're thinking about how we're going to leave our mark for those who come after. What kind of a trail are we called to leave? What kind of a trail are we called to lay down for those who are coming in our steps? Well, look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 18. The writer of Hebrews says, We have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and that burned with fire, to blackness and darkness and tempest to the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. If so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to the Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of saints, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of them all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of the sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Ultimately, beloved, we are called to lay down a track that navigates between an absolute disregard for the things that we do and an absolute focus on it. You're not going to be saved by your works. But neither can you ignore works of righteousness that God has called you to do. You're not going to be saved because you don't do sinful things. But neither are you given a license to do sinful things. We are not proclaiming a life of monastic solitude so that you can somehow show God that you are worthy of salvation. Nor are we proclaiming a life of sinful hedonism, whereby you pursue your own pleasures without any regard to anybody else in your life. What we're proclaiming, and what we must be clear in our proclamation, is this. That God himself has done all things to save us, and that he is working through his Spirit to transform us into the likeness of Christ. That we are fallen, redeemed people. And that as we are fallen and redeemed, we walk a path of obedience to the best of our ability, knowing that when we fail, God is righteous to forgive us our failures, to forgive us our transgressions and our trespasses, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We proclaim the hope that is ours because of the work of Christ. We proclaim the gospel. And and what we must understand is that there are people in all aspects of a relationship to God who need the gospel faithfully proclaimed. It is the one message that has to be given. There are those who are faithfully serving by our side who need to know and see that they can rely upon their brethren to do what is necessary. So if you're out in front leading the way and you're fighting the fight, it's good to know that the people beside you and around you are supporting you. That they can be trusted, that they can be leaned upon, that, they can, that you can know that somebody has your back. 
It's good to know that no matter what goes on, our God has surrounded us with people who will walk faithfully with us. But knowing that and seeing it, sometimes that's two different things. So beloved, as it's in your power to do so, aim yourself to be a person that the the believers around you know walks in faithfulness regardless. Aim to be a person who, who the people who rely on you can know that no matter what happens, you can be relied upon. Seek to be that person. Because the body of Christ needs it. But there are also those who walk alongside us who are weak and wounded. And they need to be sustained. There are those who walk alongside us who have taken drastic and terrible blows from the enemy. And they need faithful believers to come alongside them and love them and hold them up. They need faithful believers to speak words of peace and grace to them. They don't need to be beaten down because they're wounded. They need to be held up. They need to be loved. They need the gospel as well because sometimes when we're wounded, we forget that God forgives. Sometimes when we're wounded, we forget that God has made a way for us to be restored to Him. Sometimes when we're wounded, we think that although we were saved by grace, keeping it belongs to us. And none of that is true. You see, we need the gospel preached to us as well when we're wounded in the fight. We lay trail for those who are with us now. We also lay trail for those who are not yet among us. For there are those who walk after us who will need to see the trail blazed by our faithfulness. There are those who are still coming up, who are going to look to say, what is it that my fathers have done? What is it that my sisters have done? What is it that those who have walked before me have done so that I might know how to walk in grace? Beloved, the church needs people to finish the race faithfully. Have you ever watched somebody running a race, a foot race? The really good runners... How do they cross the finish line? Chest flung forward, arms flung back, leaning forward so much so that you think they're going to fall on their noses if they don't keep their feet moving, and maybe they will. But what is it that's that's doing that? It's a desire to to finish well. It's a desire to run to the end of your life, to to be absolutely sure that when you cross the line, you're giving it everything you have in you. Beloved, that is so much not the message that is proclaimed in this nation. The message is proclaimed in this nation is, eh, you've worked hard, take your ease, enjoy yourself. I understand physically when we get older, we can't do everything we used to do. But beloved, there are things that you can do that you can do until the day that you die. You need to do them with everything that's in you. You need to do them with passion, with purpose. You need to do them with a determination to honor your king, to redeem every moment that you're given because the days are evil. And there are people coming after you who need to see what it looks like to finish well. We also need to proclaim the gospel and lay trail for those who don't yet know him. Because there is no shortage of people who are proclaiming false gospels. And while they look flashy and they look good on the surface, it doesn't take long to recognize the lie. And it won't take you long talking to people to find somebody who will say to you something like this. I don't want to hear it. I tried God. It didn't work. Do you know what they're telling you? That some charlatan got to them first and convinced them that a lie was the truth. And because they fell victim to it, they're not interested in anything that even sounds similar. If you live your life well before them, you just might earn a hearing. If you live your life faithfully in front of them, you just might earn the right to speak to them what truth really is. You see... We're laying down trail for those who come after. We're laying down trail for those who are with us right now. We're laying down trail for those who are wounded. But we're also laying down tributaries that will draw people into the trail of the gospel. And that's a job that you do all the time. You need to be aware of what you're speaking. 
You need to be aware of, of, of how you address people and, and the things that you engage in conversation with and about. You need to be mindful of the fact that this encounter with whoever it is you're talking to might be the only encounter you ever get. It might be the last encounter that they ever have. And you need to bear in mind that God has called you to lay down a path, a tributary, which will draw them to him. That's the purpose of our lives. Across the board, in everything that we do, what God calls us to do is to be blazing trail to the sake of Christ and to the purpose of the cross. Everything we do leads to Jesus. So do it well. Do it with purpose. Do it with intention. Do it with focus. Let your life be an adornment to the gospel so that in the end, you imitate those who through faith and patience have inherited the promise. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day. And I pray, Lord, that as we think on these things, that we would be convicted of our failings and drawn to repent. But God, I pray also that you would encourage us and strengthen us for the task ahead. Lord, let us be found faithful with all that you give to us. Teach us to walk in grace and in truth. Teach us, God, that in this day and at this moment, we belong to you. And that this day and this moment has been ordained by you for purposes that you know. Help us seek to walk faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.